Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of our Topics in Drug Testing podcast series. My name is Frank Samaro. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Clinical Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest Diagnostics. Today's episode is titled Fentanyl, What You Need to Know. And I think you're going to really get a lot out of the discussion with our experts on what is truly a substance of concern. Today, our podcast features Quest's very own Dr. Jeff Gooden and Dr. Jack Kane. Dr. Gooden is a senior medical advisor for the toxicology and drug monitoring franchise here at Quest. And Dr. Kane is the director and medical science liaison for that same toxicology and drug monitoring franchise at Quest. Jeff and Jack, it's great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to you to get the discussion started. Thanks, Frank. And welcome to you all for another episode of our Quest podcast that has to do with pertinent topics in drug monitoring and drug testing. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic which has been in the lay press a lot recently. It's the drug fentanyl. What is it? What's it doing to our communities? Can we test for it? What are the dangers? So I'm joined today, as Frank mentioned, by my colleague, Dr. Jack Kane. Jack, why don't you give us some insight into, you know, why is there so much press around fentanyl? Yeah, well, drug overdoses are at an all-time high, in excess of 90,000 overdose deaths, um, which is very alarming. And so we always ask ourselves, even here at Quest, what drugs are contributing to it? As you can imagine, opiates, opioids are still involved. But when you dive more into these overdose deaths, you start to see what the significant culprit is, and it's this synthetic opioid meaning purely lab-made opioid that's known as fentanyl that is contributing largely to these overdose deaths. And for those of you that haven't heard, Jack's referring to the data that came out from CDC just a couple of months ago where they did their you know, provisional calculations of how many people died from drug overdose deaths in 2020. And uh, just to reiterate, it's at an all-time high, which is very scary. And you know, one of our previous podcasts, we talked about You know, the fact that with the COVID-19 pandemic, we'll review some of our data with you that showed just how much there was a rise in illicit drug use. We thought we had the opioid epidemic under control, and then we get these stats that overdose deaths at an all-time high. I shouldn't say I'm happy to report, but, you know, at least from a clinician standpoint, from you guys that are out there on the front lines, most of the overdose doses are not coming from prescription opiates or prescription analgesics. Jack, talk to us a little bit about what's driving the overdoses. Yeah, as I mentioned, fentanyl specifically is contributing to the most significant portion of these opioid overdose deaths. Uh, Methamphetamines have spiked as well, but we're looking at this lab-made clandestine source for what used to be more commonly prescribed drug for severe chronic pain. Now is just making its way into the streets you know, being synthesized by clandestine laboratories and pushing its way into America and leading to significant overdose deaths. It's fentanyl's 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin and morphine, respectively. And so it doesn't take much, and it's very alarming. And that's what this data shows. So an estimated 57,550 people died of overdoses from synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl, an increase of more than 54% over 2019. For a while, the public outcry was that doctors should stop prescribing opioids for those patients with refractory chronic pain syndromes. And let me tell you, as a practicing pain management physician, 
there are some patients that truly warrant opioid analgesics if they're responsible enough to be on that class of drug. And as you see from the overdose deaths, it's no longer coming from the prescriptions. This clearly is a street drug and a synthetic opioid drug problem. And, you know, Jack, you said something interesting that cocaine and psychostimulants are on the rise as well. I mean, certainly not contributing to the deaths the way that fentanyl is, but, you know, this country has a drug crisis. And, you know, to kind of surveil that, but Quest, we look towards our own data. You know, you think about Quest as being one of the largest, if not the largest lab in the country and millions and millions of samples that we could literally data mine. And what we did uh, about a year ago was looked at, you know, what happened after the start of the pandemic as far as drug testing results went. And what we saw was that positivity for non-prescribed drugs really went way up. Jack, give us some highlights from that study. Yeah, as you can imagine, positivity for non-prescribed fentanyl increased by 35% during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is in line with this increase in overdose deaths that we're seeing. Significant increases in positivity were also demonstrated for heroin, which is largely co-laced with fentanyl these days, and opiates and marijuana. And, you know, we talked about in a previous podcast, Jack, that the AMA said, look, there are some reasons that patients could stay at home and not go to the doctor, you know, for routine testing. And for that, I mean, if you miss a one blood pressure check or a cholesterol screen is one thing. But unfortunately, even like the, the American Society of Addiction Medicine said, hey, look, we're so worried about healthcare workers contracting SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 that we think we should pause drug testing. And that came at just such a bad time because Look at this incidence of overdose tests. Look at the incidence of unprescribed drugs that we found in, in people's urines. But we've talked about that before. Let's get back to the topic at hand. Jack, give us a, a, just a quick history about fentanyl and, and maybe how it differs from other conventional opioids. Yeah, you know, fentanyl was actually first synthesized in 1959 you know, by Paul Jansen in order to advance the understanding of opioid receptors. It was actually derived from the synthetic opioid known as mepiridine. And then as we move through time, of course, innovations and formulation and how the medication is delivered and which patients could be treated naturally occurred. It has gotten to the extent where that fentanyl now requires a REMS program, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy in order to promote positive medication use behaviors of fentanyl because the risks are known. It's very potent and it could cause fatal respiratory depression if misused or used in combinations of other drugs that suppress the central nervous system. And so, you know, as we kind of move forward through time, we know that the opioid epidemic did occur due to, I would say, negligent prescribing practices for some of the infamous prescription opioids, such as oxycodone, hydrocodone. And as we move through it, sure, to uh, improve the outcomes of the opioid epidemic, the prescribing of opioids became uh, more strict. The guidelines were more stringent. And Dr. Gooden, as a practicing anesthesiologist and pain medicine practitioner, you know, you've experienced just how strict it is firsthand to uh, prescribe some of these opioids traditionally. Yeah, there's no question about it, Jack. It definitely, the landscape got tougher and payers and policymakers made it more difficult to prescribe opiates. But like I said, you know, clinicians just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, our body makes an endogenous endorphin-like molecule that binds to the mu opioid receptors. We know that it promotes analgesia certainly has some adverse effects that go along with it. So you need to screen for the right type of patients who could use these medicines responsibly. And like you said, there are now programs in place, the REMS programs is just one example of how clinicians are 
kind of being forced to educate themselves around the safe use of these medications to try to prevent what happened in the past, where kind of unknowingly we were trying to do the right things for patients, but there were some bad patients, bad actors in there that really took advantage and went to the streets with these drugs. It is a double-edged sword. So the prescribing of opioids decreased significantly, but guess what? Patients that were accustomed to taking these opioids and maybe had a severe opioid use disorder, where did they go? They went to the streets to find opioids to self-medicate their pain and also self-medicate their withdrawal symptoms. That in and of itself is where fentanyl, the illicit part of fentanyl, uh, has gotten its footing. Yeah, Neil, Jack, I remember hearing the first reports of manufactured fentanyl coming in from China and reading some articles about, you know, for the smart chemists, just how cheap and easy it was to literally make a kilogram of fentanyl, which would kill a thousand of us, right? And they're now spiking other street drugs with fentanyl. And we see this at Quest all the time. You know, we have clinicians call in and say, hey, my patient says they smoke marijuana, but they didn't use fentanyl. Or yeah, we have a patient that admitted to using cocaine, but they didn't use fentanyl. Jack, tell us a little bit about the tainted drug supply out there. Yeah. So for starters, you don't need the poppy plant to make fentanyl. So oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, all of those are derived, even heroin, all of those are derived from the poppy plant, the resin of the poppy plant. It's not needed. Fentanyl is purely synthetic. The DEA estimated that each fentanyl pill costs only $1 to produce, and it could be resold in the U.S. for at least 10 times as much. And fentanyl can be sold as a bulk powder. It's synthesized, processed in these clandestine laboratories out of Southeast Asia or even Mexico and mixed with heroin and sold as heroin in the U.S. What's even scarier, you know, Dr. Gooden, we just talked about how the DEA just reported uh, millions of tablets that appeared to be other prescription opioids were actually laced with fentanyl. So counterfeit pills containing fentanyl in the millions uh, was just seized by the DEA. So fentanyl is found in so many different formulations, and it's not just sold as heroin. It's not just sold as oxycodone and sold as various other uh, substances. And what's even more alarming is the cartels in Mexico have actually learned to synthesize it as well. Yeah. So Jack, it's easy to see why the overdose death numbers are what they are. I mean, think about a kid buying a tablet on the street that looks like a Xanax pill or an oxycodone pill, and it actually contains fentanyl because, you know, the street guys were able to buy a pill press and make pills that look like something, but aren't really that. So It is certainly a scary time out there and, you know, puts the plug back in for early detection of people using illicit drugs. And we're going to get to talk about drug screening in in just a moment. But Jack, before we get on to how we might do that, tell me just a little bit about fentanyl analogs. I hear this word all the time, fentanyl analogs. Yeah. So fentanyl had an evil cousin or an evil sister. That would be fentanyl analogs. So works similarly to fentanyl, but the potencies could vary. One might be more potent than fentanyl, one might be less potent than fentanyl. You know, acetylfentanyl is a notorious fentanyl analog. It's often found co-laced with fentanyl in and of itself. So you have to think about it. There are fentanyl precursors, such as 4-A-N-P-P, that could be used in a lab to synthesize fentanyl, But then there are fentanyl analogs, again, like these sisters or brothers of fentanyl that vary in potencies, uh, but nevertheless can impact the patient in negative ways. And it's very alarming. Hey, Jack, I'm asked all the time if doctors should be screening for these fentanyl analogs. And what I tell them is this, you know, 
for the most part, let's say you have patients that are on benzos or opiates in a pain practice, or even those that have known intravenous drug use issues. I would screen for the esoteric stuff if somebody looks intoxicated or toxic, but test negative for all the other drugs. Because let's face it, the most common things that we see on the streets are the most common things, right? Fentanyl and heroin and oxycodone and and those kind of things. So I don't think routine testing for the fentanyl analogs is needed, just my opinion. But it's important that you're aware that they're out there for sure, these analogs of uh, fentanyl. All right, so Jack, let's turn our attention now to drug monitoring. So as we finish up this podcast, let's talk a little bit about why you should drug test. You know, from a clinician standpoint, I'll tell you, it really helps us manage prescription drug use. So although I practice addiction medicine, the majority of my focus has been on pain for the last couple of decades. And drug testing, we say this all the time, it's the only objective tool that we have to know what a patient has ingested or smoked or taken into their body. It's hopefully positive when we test for the drugs that they're supposed to be on and negative for illicit or other prescribed drugs. We're going to give you some insights into how often that doesn't happen in just a moment. It clearly helps make sure that patients adhere to our treatment plan. It helps detect early substance misuse or abuse of of medications. It certainly has helped me identify patients that might be diverting medications if their urines come back clean. And let's face it, I'd be willing to bet that in every state in this country, drug screening has become standard of care if you're prescribing controlled substances. So it really does advocate for your patients. It shows that they're being compliant with the treatment plan, and it helps protect you against scrutiny. Jack, how about from a guideline standpoint? Are there any guidelines that support drug testing? Yeah, CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain certainly mention the importance of drug testing, at least annually, which I can say is not enough. But nevertheless, it's acknowledged that drug testing can be used to assess for prescribed medications, as well as other controlled prescription drugs and illicit drugs. The AACC also supports drug testing. And as you can imagine, the American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends drug testing to be part of a routine, initial, and ongoing patient assessment for recent substance use in all addiction treatment settings. Yeah, Jack, like I said before, I think most states and most guidelines support drug testing. One of the challenges from a clinical side is that nobody really has kind of taken the bull by the horns and said, okay, look, you have a new chronic pain patient, here's what you should test for. Here's how often you should test. Here's how you should test, right? We did that whole podcast on the difference between presumptive testing and definitive testing for those that are interested. There are different types of drug testing. But I think you'll find this really interesting. I mean, we've been collecting data for probably, you know, eight or 10 years running. We publish it in a report called Health Trends. You could find those all online year after year after year. And it's just amazing out of all of the hundreds of thousands or millions of samples that we've data mined, Jack, give our audience an idea of how many patients we find that their reports don't match what they're supposed to be taking. Yeah, we we ask ourselves, is patient self-reporting reliable? Well, not always. Well, how often do we see an inconsistent drug test result? Nearly 50% of the time, 48% of Quest drug monitoring tests showed signs of misuse meaning additional drugs are found, different drugs are found than what was prescribed, or no drugs are found. So complete medication non-adherence. And Jack, I want our listeners to hear that again, almost 50%. And the the number's about the same every single year, a little above or a little below. 50% of the samples that come into Quest don't have what you tell us they should have in there. In other words, on the 
order form or the requisition, clinicians write in the medicines the patient is supposed to be taking, and 50% of them don't match. We call that our med match program. Half of them, additional drugs are found. Almost 20%, one in five different drugs are found. A third of them, no drugs are found. And if you, like me, talk to your patients about their results, they tell you, oh, yeah, it was a bad month. I ran out of my medicines. Well, hey, why didn't you tell me that when I took your urine rather than waiting for when the sample results? And this is why drug testing is the standard of care. You just look at that data set. We look at hundreds of thousands of drug testing specimens, and it shows this high prevalence of noncompliance. Absolutely. So, Jack, let's just remind everyone out there that those point-of-care tests, and look, I use them as well, the cups or the dipsticks, those are great to give you some rapid qualitative results, a little pink line that tells you, you know, there's something there or there's something not there. But it's just a screen. I've had patients who shave off little, you know, pieces of their oxycodone pill, and of course the cup tells me there's oxycodone in there. When we send it to the lab for definitive testing, it tells me, how much is in there. And it also tells me if there's the metabolites of oxycodone, like noroxycodone or oxymorphone. The cup won't tell me that. Uh, Sometimes with opiates, if a patient's on hydrocodone, the cup will tell me positive opiates. Well, what does that mean? Is it heroin or is it hydrocodone? The only way to know is to send your sample for definitive testing. Uh, Jack, talk a little bit about the poster we just presented at Pain Week in uh, early September. Yeah, so you, you just mentioned, you know, reference labs use more robust technology to identify these substances because it's required, because a lot of them have similar chemical structures to each other and, and so forth. Well, we wanted to see just what an instant rapid cup, those cups that are used in, in office, might be missing if clinicians are using them. And so we compared the published cutoffs that are used on a point of care cup, a commonly used one versus the cutoffs, meaning the threshold for positivity uh, that are used uh, at a reference lab. And what we found was that of the 20,068 samples that were tested for fentanyl, 74% of them were between the definitive cutoff of 0.5 and that of 200 nanograms per milliliter, that of a point-of-care cup. So if you use a point-of-care cup at this very high cutoff, you're missing what could be a 74% false negative rate. That's just incredible, Jack. I mean, think about it. We know that the point of care testing cups serve their purpose, but they miss certain benzos. They don't give you information about certain opioids. Take a drug like Tepentadol or until recently Gabapentin, they weren't even available for the cup. So for those of you out there that rely just on presumptive testing with a point of care cup, it's okay to give you rapid results, but on a minimum, on a low-risk patient, once or twice a year, send that sample into the lab to confirm your results. On a high-risk patient, you might need to send that sample clearly more often. So remember, there's different cutoffs or different thresholds. And sometimes we don't detect the parent drug. Sometimes we detect the metabolite. Like in the case of fentanyl, we might detect norfentanyl as well. So those things are all important. Jack, let's wrap up here and let's talk about how does a, a clinician to know which patient to drug test or which patient to monitor? You know, considerations for implementing a, re- a responsible testing protocol, maybe providers want to risk stratify, low, medium, high. Of course, we defer to the providers, but you would definitely want to establish which individuals to monitor. You want to evaluate patient risk factors using validated tools. Dr. Gooden, you can certainly elaborate on that. Always review the 
state drug monitoring program. Just keep in mind that that is only one part of the picture. Drug monitoring in terms of clinical drug testing actually shows what's passed through a patient's system because the metabolites are formed. You know, you want to create risk written or treatment agreements, discuss the risks and benefits of therapy, review patient responsibilities, conduct baseline testing, identify that underlying aberrant behavior that might be consistent with a severe substance use disorder, and then conduct periodic and risk-based drug monitoring. Yeah. And Jack, I said it early on in the podcast. I think I'm confident to say that drug testing has become standard of care when treating patients with controlled substances. And, and look, we, we need to extend that beyond just opioids, right? Plenty of patients are on benzodiazepines or you know psychostimulants. And uh, really, it is a good compliance tool to know what your patient is taking. And then there's a choice of, you know, what do you order? And we've seen some of these kind of bad actor labs out there who just convince docs to order 50, 75, 100 different drugs. You don't need to do that. Think about your patient characteristics. Really, the top five or six drugs of misuse should suffice in most instances. I'll remind everybody that we can and do test for alcohol, these minor alcohol metabolites. Remember that the breathalyzer picks up alcohol for a number of hours. We could pick up alcohol for a number of days. And that's important because we instruct patients not to consume alcohol when they're on controlled substances. So things like amphetamine, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, opiates, marijuana. Think about what a good drug testing protocol might look like for your practice. If you're not in an area that has a, a methamphetamine abuse problem and your, your, your patients don't look the type, you might not have to order that on every single patient. So again, you need to adopt a drug testing menu that suits your own practice. Hey, Jack, give us some ideas about frequency of drug testing. How often are we supposed to test? Yeah, you want to identify patients at high risk for opioid abuse, misuse, or diversion for whom more intensive monitoring may be appropriate. Of course, we always de defer to providers on what is medically necessary in terms of frequency and panel design. But I would argue, you know, you have that patient who's relapsed on cocaine. That patient is a candidate for more frequent monitoring. If you remember a couple of years ago, we went back and we mined our data and we said, okay, Let's look at whether the intervals between drug testing make a difference on aberrant results. And they clearly did. And the one thing we saw in that exercise, testing mm -hmm. patients once a year was not enough, mm -hmm. right? And you can imagine, look, you, a drug test picks up three to five days worth of drug use. That's not enough to screen a patient's behavior for an entire year. Nobody knows the exact number. We thought that you know, about quarterly was a reasonable amount of time, at least from our data mining exercise to be able to screen patients and have an idea of the types of drugs that they're using. Well, look, this has been a great session. We hope that you learned a little bit about fentanyl. It's dangerous. A little bit about laboratory testing and laboratory assessment. Jack, maybe give a, a line or two about what kind of fentanyl testing do we do at Quest? Yeah, so we offer a presumptive screen and definitive analysis, very sensitive cutoffs in order to catch the low dosing nature of fentanyl because you know you're not dosing like you would a Percocet. So we will find small amounts and fentanyl also lingers for longer periods of time, which we can elaborate at a different time. But you know it stores in fatty tissue and can remain in the patient's system for a while. So a definitive analysis, meaning done on mass spec for confirmation, is certainly offered and it's a very sensitive and specific test. That's great. Thanks, Jack. So Look, fighting the war against pain out there, the CDC guidelines are five years old already. There's been a number of agencies that have come out kind of speaking against these 
milligram equivalent maximum daily dosages. AMA even just said, look, we think CDC needs to kind of rethink this philosophy. If you have patients on controlled substances, opiates, benzodiazepines, if you have patients that you think are at risk for substance use disorder or opioid use disorder, drug monitoring is really the only objective tool we have to follow them over time and know what they're consuming. On behalf of Quest, I'd like to say thanks to my colleague, Dr. Kane. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden, and we'll turn it back over to Frank for a closing. Okay, that does it for today's discussion on fentanyl. I hope you got a lot out of the discussion. I know I sure did. I'd like to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, for being with us and sharing that important information. Just a few notes to wrap up. To listen to this and all our other podcasts on drug testing, be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. Again, that's questdrugtesting.com, and our series is titled Topics in Drug Testing. To learn more about Quest Drug Monitoring offering overall, please visit questdrugmonitoring.com. Here you can find information on our test directory and all kinds of offerings and resources from our toxicology experts. And finally, if you have any specific questions regarding test ordering or results interpretation, please be sure to contact our experts at the Quest Diagnostics RX Tox line. That number is one 870 Tox or 1-877-407-9869. Thank you for your time. At Quest Diagnostics, we are committed to providing you results and insight to support your clinical decisions.